Hey, you guys give these three a round of applause. They did a good job this week. Yeah, they worked hard kind of putting this together and uh, a little different, uh, not having everybody up here. And uh, So anyways, I'm grateful for them and all the talent we've got. Uh, okay, kiddos, you guys can come on down here and meet Joe and Kelly uh, at the front, or just Kelly. I guess Joe's already left us. So... See, I picked the good week last week. You notice I had like five? Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter uh, 64. Uh, I just want to say thanks to, to Joe. I know he's not in here, but he, he's done a great job the last couple weeks as he's preached two of these messages. Uh, and uh, I just thank you guys that you've allowed me uh, to let him preach like that. Uh, we've got a, a really gracious church that, that, that they allow uh, me to give him those opportunities. Uh, the cool thing about Joe is, is, I don't know how many of you know this, but he's fixing to be a published author. Uh, he, he has a book contract, and he's written a book, and that book will be out sometime at the 1st of January. Uh, so that's kind of cool that, that we've got a guy on staff that somehow has time to write books, and he's in the process of writing another one. So um, we'll make a big deal about that when it comes out and hopefully be able to get you guys some copies and uh, maybe set up a booth in the back. He can sign books, right? We just don't want it to go to his head too bad, all right? All right. Isaiah chapter 64. Uh, and if you would please stand with me this morning as we honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to be uh, focusing on verses 5 through 9, but I want to start in verse 1 this morning. Joe covered this last week. Isaiah 64, verse 1 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When, did you, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we've been, long, we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, and we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for all you've given us. Thank you for Advent. Again, we look back to look forward. Uh, and Father, as we've looked at this series on longing, uh, I pray today that, that we would long for the holiness of God. Uh, that we would see that, that holiness is the reason for Christmas. Holiness is the reason you sent your Son, because you are a holy God. Be with us now as we study your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, so we, we've, we've said about Advent so far is this over the last three weeks, is that we look back to look forward. So we look back on Christ's first coming, and then we look forward to his return. So we knowing that he's come the first time 
strengthens and bolsters our faith right now here uh, in the present. And it gives us hope for the future because we know that since he came the first time, he'll come a second time. And then when he comes, he'll establish his kingdom. He'll right all wrongs and he'll reign with us forever and ever here on this earth. And so this Advent, what we've done is we've looked at this theme of longing. And so week one was longing for the love of God, that love that only God can bring, that love that you and I see most clearly demonstrated on the cross as he lays down his life for sinners like us. Week two was longing for the peace of God. And what we said is that we all long for peace. We all long for an internal peace between us and God. We want to know that that we're okay, that that, that God loves us, that God has forgiven us. But then we also long for an external peace with others. So what we do is we look back to Christ's first coming. And when we look back on the first coming, what we see is that through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, that he has brought us internal peace with God for those of us who have trusted in him. But then we look forward to his second coming when he will reign here on this earth forever and ever. And when he does that, there will be external peace with the world, with others. There'll be this peace that that we can't explain because he'll right all wrongs and make all things new. And last week, Joe did a good job talking about longing for the presence of God. That, That we all want to feel God's presence. And probably more than ever this year when we feel like God has been so distanced from so much of what we've gone through. And I loved how Joe put it last week because he said this side of the cross, we have different ways that we can feel God's presence. And the first way was when we go to his word. That every time we open up God's word, we get a special experience of God's presence through the pages of scripture. The second way is through the Lord's Supper. Every time we come to the Lord's table, it reminds us of Christ's broken body and his shed blood for our sins. And when we do that, we experience the presence of Christ. And the third way that we can experience God's special presence is through other believers. That each and every one of us who have trusted in Christ have the spirit of Christ dwelling within us so that when we're together, it's the presence of Christ. Now, when I was a junior in high school, we were going through a, uh, uh, a section in, a, in our English class on like colonial literature. And, and I almost guarantee every one of you remember this moment when you read this sermon by this old pastor named Jonathan Edwards. Right? Does anybody remember that? And the title of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And there was one passage that, that's always stuck with me. And I'm going to read it to you. This is what Edwards says. The God that holds you over the pit of hell much in the same way as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, 
that you were suffered to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Now, I remember the gist of the discussion in class after we read that. And again, if you remember, you read it, you probably had some discussion over it. And I remember people saying things like, did people really believe that way? What a horrible man. Right? What, what a crazy man that he would get up and preach a sermon like that to people. I mean, God's not really angry, is he? I mean, he's a God of love. Like, like, we've changed in our understanding. I remember our English teacher, who I don't think was a Christian, but anyways, was saying, hey, we've changed in our understanding uh, of God, and we don't see him that way. That's kind of, of a primitive way to look at God, that the God of the Bible's not like that. And listen, I was a good church-going kid, and I remember reading that sermon going, what in the heck? Why would anybody get up and preach something like that? And, and when you read about Edwards, you find out he never even really preached. He just read the whole time, which apparently he was a terrible speaker. But at the end of the sermon, there were so many people laying on the floor, weeping and moaning, that it was just crazy the number of people that came to faith in Christ. And this really probably set off what they call the Great Awakening. Now, as an older man, I, I think I can understand what Edwards was saying, and, and I believe what he said was to be absolutely correct. That the God of the Bible is an angry God. The God of the Bible is a holy God. And so the title of this message is Longing for the Holiness of God. And again, you may think, well, this isn't a Christmas message. That's not what I came to hear. I wanted a little baby Jesus in his golden fleece diaper, right? And I wanted all the cute things that go with that. Not holiness, but listen to me. Holiness has everything to do with Christmas. Everything. We've lost the connection in our society with a holy, angry God, and that is not a good thing, folks. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, you need an angry God. You need in your heart and in your mind a God who gets angry at sin. You need an angry God to live with hope. You need an angry God to live with humility. And you need an angry God to know how loved you are. So I just want to look at those three things this morning. How do we have to have an angry God to have hope, humility, and to know how loved we are? So let's look back on, on the part of Joe's text from last week. Look at Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 3. Oh, that you would rim the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. So remember, the people are longing for the presence of God, right? They're about to be carried away into exile. God's allowing this to happen to them, and so they're longing for God's presence. And in verse 2, they're asking that his presence would come down, and what are they saying? We want your presence to come down and consume the bad guys, we wanted to come down and, and get these Babylonians if you would just take care of them. They would be like dust before you. They would be like burning twigs. See, you and I live in a world filled with so much injustice and evil, don't we? Absolutely. And unless you have an angry God, a God who gets angry at injustice and does something about it, you have no hope. 
You have zero hope. See, when we talk about God's anger, it's not crankiness, it's not an ill temper, it's not ego, it's not insecurity. God's anger is not out of control. In fact, it's fixed, it's settled, it's incorruptible opposition to injustice and evil. So that means that no debt will go unpaid, that one day every account will be squared and nobody will get away with anything. And that is very good news. See, that means there's a day coming when every wrong will be made right. That means that if you're a victim of injustice, whatever that injustice is, we have hope in Christ. We have hope that one day He will right all wrongs, that He will fix everything, that everything that is bent will be made straight. Now, it may not happen in this lifetime, but when Jesus returns one day, this will happen. So see, we, we need an angry God who will do away with all the wrongs that we've experienced. We need that in order to have hope for the future. Okay? So these first three verses, the people are saying, hey, listen, we're victims of injustice. So we're calling down this God of judgment and wrath into the world so that he will consume our enemies, so he'll consume the wicked people. But then I want you to look at verses 4 through 6. We see what commentators call an ironic relationship between the first and the second stanzas. So verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? Now verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls on your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities, okay? So now, check it. Verses 1 through 3. The people are saying, hey God, please rend the heavens. Please come down. Do away with all the bad people. But then if you look at verse 6, the very thing that they're calling God to do to the bad people is all of a sudden happening to them. In verse 6, they use four similes, okay? English teachers, you like what I did there? Similes, right? I had to look up what that was. Yeah, I completely forgot. I was like, what in the heck is this? Oh, like her ass. Okay, I got it, okay? But look what they say. They said, we're like one who is unclean. They're talking about a leper who would run around and say, unclean, unclean, stay away, back up, get away from us. They say, we're like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf. And then finally, because we fade like a leaf, we're carried away on the wind. And see, I didn't notice this until this week, but it's so important that we see this, especially, I think, in 2020. See, when you meet the holy, angry God of the Bible, you'll get yourself out of verses 1 through 3, okay? So, so when we read verses 1 through 3, oh, that you would rend the heavens, oh, that you would come down, oh, that you would burn up all of our enemies, every single one of us are thinking of other people, aren't we? You can be honest, it's okay. 
Someone or some idea or some group came to mind. So you thought, if only God would get them, if only God would go get this group. But then when you read verses 4 through 6, suddenly you realize, oh, we deserve as much punishment as they do. We're in trouble now. See, one way to know if you're getting in touch with the God of the Bible is that you have to understand this. Again, Tim Keller was so helpful to me in this because Keller said there's two kinds of people in the world. He said, on the one hand, you have people that we would call traditionally religious people. So so they have uh, absolute standards. These people believe in moral values. They believe that we will be judged according to those values and according to those standards. Sounds familiar, right? So people that believe this way say, hey, we're good people. Like, we don't cheat on our spouses, uh, we believe in the Ten Commandments, we go to church, we raised our kids to be good moral kids, they say yes sir and no sir and yes ma'am and no ma'am, right? We, we vote for the right political party, we, we would never ever think about in our life voting blue, right? Can't be a Christian and be a Democrat, okay? And, and for the record, can I just like chase a rabbit? This is where I'm at, okay? Somebody accused me in Gordon's a few months ago of shilling for Joe Biden and it kind of pissed me off. Okay, and let me explain to you why that makes me mad. It makes me mad because if you can't allow the Bible to call out some of your faults, even on the conservative side of things, you've got a problem with the Bible. Okay, we always have to remember is that the Bible is equal opportunity for everyone. Amen. If you go to the book of Mark, you remember there's this wonderful little passage where it says that the Pharisees, right, that would be us, the good religious moral people, conspired with the Herodians, who are the liberal, progressive people, and what did they conspire to do? Kill Jesus. We're all in the same boat, amen? Okay, and so this is me. This is where I find myself, okay? So when we hear verses 1 through 3, what are we saying? Oh, God, come get the bad guys. Get the people on the other side. Well, who are the bad people? Well, the other person, Keller says, is the progressive liberal. The progressive liberal says, you know, Everyone has their own way of defining sin. What's sinful for you may not be sinful for me, right? We just need to be really, really tolerant. We need to embrace everyone. We just have to accept everyone. We just need to overlook sin. God is just this big, loving granddad in the sky, and he never gets upset at anything. And, of course, they all sound very tolerant until you disagree with them, right? Because why? They also live in verses 1 through 3. And what they say is the same thing that we do. Oh, Lord, that you would just rend the heavens and come down and get these intolerant, moral, red hat-wearing people. Right? Because they're the problem. If we could just wipe them out. You see, the religious people and the irreligious people are all walking around saying the exact same thing. If only everyone in the world were like me, then there wouldn't be any problems at all. Keller says it doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious, whether you're conservative or liberal. If you live in verses 1 through 3, your attitude will always be the same. The problem's always on the other side. See, as Christians, when we finally get close enough to seeing what God is like, what we do is we stop on verse 6 and we begin to ponder that point. See, the prophet says what? That all of our righteous deeds... 
are like a polluted garment. He's not saying your sins, not the bad things that you know you do, the good things that you do in the sight of God are nothing but a polluted garment. In the Hebrew, he's talking about an article of clothing that was used for menstruation. He's saying that is what your good deeds are like in the sight of God. See, when we look past all the external things that we do, and instead look at our hearts, and we start looking at the motivations behind most of our good deeds, and if we're real honest, we realize that our righteousness kind of stinks, doesn't it? I mean, how many good things did you do this week for the wrong reason? Probably a bunch, if you're like me. Probably a bunch. See, listen to what Tim Keller says. He says, a Christian is somebody who says, I've come to realize the reason for my sins and the reason uh, for my good deeds are the same thing. When I do a bad deed, I'm trying to be my own savior, right? I'm trying to save myself by living however I want. But when I do a good deed, I'm trying to be my own savior. When I do good deeds, I'm trying to get God to do right by me. And I'm trying to control him. And I'm trying to put God in my debt. And see, the reason that so many of us get anxious and uptight and, and irritable, and I, and I think even me, even during the, the, the political season that we found ourselves in and the coronavirus season that we found ourselves in, is that we think, man, I've done so many good things. I'm such a good moral person. I'm on the right side of all these issues. My people are on the right side of all these issues. But why aren't things going away, God? We're doing all the right things, but why does it seem like everyone else is winning? And see, this is why we have to believe in a God of holiness and judgment. Because listen to me, if you don't believe in a God of holiness and judgment, you'll never be humbled. You'll never be humbled. See, unless we see ourselves in verse 6 and understand that even we deserve judgment, all we'll be is a lousy neighbor. If you don't see yourself there, you'll just look next door and you'll look all around you and you'll say things like, well, I can't believe they live their life that way. I would never live my life that way. I can't believe that they would do that. I can't believe that they would vote that way. I can't believe that they would believe those things. I would never do something like that. But see, then if you put yourself in verse 6, what happens is, is you go, you know, I'm not superior to anybody. I really deserve just as much judgment as the next person. See, if you ever have trouble forgiving someone, most of the time it's because you don't see yourself in verse 6. You think that person is deserving of more judgment than you. And listen to me, I'm not trying to minimize what maybe some of you went through. Some of you probably dealt with some atrocious, horrible things. But listen, do you realize that your righteous deeds are polluted garments and that no matter what you do, it's still not good enough to be right with a holy God? See, if you have a holy God of judgment, it helps with worry because we have a God who's working everything out justly and all wrongs will be righted one day. If you've got a holy God of judgment, then you have hope for the future. But if you have a holy God of judgment, you also have humility because you understand that we're all in the same boat. We're a bunch of bad guys who need Jesus. And that humbles you to the ground. See, if we don't have a holy God, we're never going to be the kind of people that God's called us to be. So we need a holy God so that we can have hope. We need a holy God so that we can have humility. But listen to me, we need a holy God of anger so that we can truly understand just how loved we really are. Look at verse 8. 
After Isaiah describes how we are, how we're all unclean and, and we're not righteous, in verse 8 he says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the potter, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. See, what's fascinating about this is that God is characterized as a father, which didn't happen very often in the Old Testament. So if he's a father, that makes us his children. He's the potter, which means he's the artist, and we are the artwork. We see that God's love is the cause of his anger here. Notice Isaiah doesn't say, because you are a father and an artist, you shouldn't be mad. No, that's not what he says. He says, listen, you're our father, you're the artist, so don't be angry forever. Or the Hebrew is beyond measure or into muchness. What he means is, is that fathers and artists get angry. So, so let me approach this as a father, not an artist, right? Have no clue. If you're an artist, maybe, maybe you can help me out. But, but, but as a father, let me explain this. As a dad, if you hurt one of my kids, we're going to have a problem, Right? Now, I don't know what I'm going to do. probably wouldn't go well for me in a squirt gun fight, but I'm just going to try to do something, okay? And if it's bad enough, my anger may be consuming because I love my child so much that I don't want to see that child hurt. So, so maybe if you're an older parent in here and, and you've seen your children stray and you get angry, right? And, and you're not angry at the child. You're angry at the things the child is chasing. Why? You love the child. You love the child. See, if God looks down at this world and is not furious, he is not our father and we are not his kids. C.S. Lewis said, anger is what love bleeds when you cut it. That's a quote right there. Anger is what love bleeds when you cut it. See, God's love is a furious love and his fury is a loving fury. God's love is the cause of his anger. But the other thing is, is God's love is the satisfaction of his anger. So Isaiah says, you're holy and you're the judge. And because you're father, you should be angry. You have every right as our dad to be upset. But then what's he say? Don't be angry forever. Do something about your anger, God. See, when you're angry and you just try to hold it in or you just try to shrug it off or you try to just let it pass over you, that never works, does it? Some of you probably dealt with anger issues. You know what I'm talking about. You bottle that stuff in. It's never going to go good. But when you come into the person that you love and you say, listen, this is why I'm angry and this is why I hate what you're doing to yourself and what it's done to your, our relationship, I'm mad because of that, right? Keller says it like this. When you actually put the anger on the sin... When you put the anger on the evil, when you pour your wrath out on the sin itself that's keeping you from the other person, very often that kind of anger is what really wakes a person up. Is this not what God did for us? Verse 9, remember our sins no more. So in other words, let your love be the satisfaction of your anger. And so we all know in this room that he did that. See, this is what Christmas is all about right here is that God's love was going to be the satisfaction of his anger towards our sin. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, 
Paul says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the author says this, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering the word founder in verse 10, it means pace setter or trailblazer. It means that Christ is the first and the only initiator of salvation. That there is absolutely no way to get to God apart from him. Apart from Jesus, where are we at? We're unclean. Polluted garments. We're like leaves. We're being blown away. Nobody calls on the name of the Lord. That's what Isaiah just said. But through Christ and through his sacrifice, we all now have a way to come to Jesus. See, at the cross, that's how this all happens. So the baby Jesus that we all celebrate at Christmas was the same baby who was born to die for our sins. See, if God is going to be a God of justice and fury but not love, he loses each and every one of us in this room, doesn't he? If he just pours out his wrath, we're all gone. But if he only loves us and he never punishes sin, he's not just. See, it's only because of the cross that he can be a God of furious love and loving fury all at once. Jesus Christ is the judge who was judged. Jesus took all the anger and the wrath of injustice in this world and all of it went into his heart. So when you believe in him, there's nothing left for you but love. Christ took your punishment. Christ died in your place for your sins. And because Jesus did this on his first coming, we can count on the promise that God gave us in Isaiah 65, verse 17, where he says this, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. That because he did this for us on his first coming, he will return and right all wrongs. He'll set this world in order. And this is the promise that those of us who have trusted in this holy God have. Amen? So let me just close by saying this. We have to have a God of both loving fury and furious love. If not, there are going to be distortions in your life. So many of you in this room, okay, we, we, we like to be the conservative Christian moral people, but in reality, the way we view God is more like the progressive liberal. Let that sink in. Because many of us have a God of love without holiness and anger. See, if you have a God who never says no to you, or if you have a God who, when you read something in the Bible, you go, ah, yeah, I don't like that, I'm going to throw that out. If you don't have a God who can contradict you from time to time, then you don't have a God. You have yourself. See, so many of us are like a kid who's never been told no. You ever been around that kid? Kids, kids who grow up like that, they feel like orphans because, listen, there's no authority in their lives. 
Most of us as parents know that kids need boundaries. Kids need authority. Kids need rules. See, people who see God this way, they grow up feeling like orphans spiritually because they've never been told no. So if you just have a God of love, you don't have God. But the opposite is also true. If you just have a God of fury and not love, then listen, your life won't work. So think about Marley coming back from the dead for old Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. Right? He comes back and, 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 and he tells Scrooge all these things that he did wrong and all the ways that he could have fixed things and what would have looked differently if he had just taken a different path and what happens at the end of that story. Right? Scrooge changes, doesn't he? And God blesses each and every one. Right? Little tiny Tim. It's so wonderful. It's fiction. It never works, guys. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus told us a story to prove that point. You remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Rich man dies, goes to hell. Lazarus goes and he's up by Abraham's bosom. And the rich man somehow, someway is calling up to Lazarus going, Oh, Lazarus, Lazarus, it's so hot down here. Just, just dip your finger in water and let me, let me have just a little water. And Abraham's like, No, nah, not going to happen, man. And so the rich man's like, Oh, okay, but Abraham, just send Lazarus back to my family like Marley. Send him back to tell him all the stupid things I did and, and how I should have listened. And what does Abraham say? Nah, because it won't work. Your family has the word of God. They have the prophets. They have all of this. And they don't listen now? See, I've seen a lot of people over the years make promises to an angry God. To a God of wrath, but not a God of love. So people get in a jam. Their sins find them out, or, or, or maybe even a pandemic hits. I don't know, you know, just a guess. And at the beginning of this, I knew a lot of people that made a whole lot of promises where they were like, oh, yeah, we're coming back to church. Oh, God, oh, we're waking up. We're listening now. I got to start changing my life. I got to do something or God's going to get me. Nobody's followed through on them. See, those kind of promises never work because fear can't awaken love for you. So if you have a loving God without fury, you have nothing. But if you have a furious God without love, listen, you have something, but that thing will crush you. You're going to be a driven person. You're always going to be trying to prove to God that you're worth it. But you're always going to be stuck over here in verses 1 through 3 saying, see, I'm not the problem, it's everybody else. And so the answer for us is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. See, when Paul says the love of Christ controls us, he's thinking of Jesus under the wrath of God for our sins. And he's saying, that is what turned me into the man that I am. That's what's made me into a man of courage. That's what's melted my heart is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he can do the same thing for you. So brothers and sisters, listen, this Christmas, do you have a longing for the holiness of God? See, it's only by recognizing God's holy, righteous fury that we will be able to fully understand God's love. It's by recognizing his righteous fury that will be humbled. It's by recognizing his righteous fury that we have hope. 
So when you see the manger, what you will see then is a God who was so angry with sin and loved you so much that he was willing to do something about it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you um, that you are a holy God. Father, I pray that you would remove us as believers out of verses 1 through 3, where we would get out of the way, where we're constantly thinking that the problem is someone else or some other group and realize that we're all in the same boat. We're all bad guys who really need a Savior. And that, Father, that, that this Christmas that we would see how important your holiness is, that because of your holiness, we live with hope that one day you'll right all wrongs. Because of your holiness, we're humbled to know that, again, we're, we're all in need of a Savior. And because of your holiness, we see how much you really love us. That you were angry enough about sin that you did something about it by sending your Son into the world. And so that baby that we celebrate at Christmas was born to die. That baby was born to have nails driven through its hands, to have a spear shoved in its side to have a crown of thorns placed on his head and to suffer the full wrath of a holy God for what our sins have done. And Father, when we see that God, our hearts are melted and we worship and we change because we realize that that should have been us. So Father, create us and make us to be a people that see that and recognize that. I pray if there's anyone in here today that does not know you, that as the gospel has been preached and proclaimed, that today they have been saved, that you've been the initiator of salvation and you've saved them and changed their lives today and they would not leave here without talking to me or, or friend today. And for the rest of us, I just pray that now that we can stand and with all of our hearts uh, and our voices Sing to our great God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would please.